Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Ian Baruma is the author, co-author, and editor of over a dozen books. He has been an editor at the Far Eastern Economic Review and the New York Review of Books. Year Zero, A History of 1945, was published in 2013. The book is the history of 1945, but it's actually not the whole year. It's not a, a military history in that it goes into the Battle of Berlin and all that kind of thing. It's about what happened after the war. Uh, so after May 45 uh, in Europe and uh, August 45 in uh, Asia. And so it's how the world tried to put itself together, what happens after a devastating war. And of course, there are many things that when you look into the history of what happened then, one will recognize uh, today when you look at conflicts that are going on uh, right now. Now, one of the cliched questions that interviewers often come up with is, why did you write this book? I can answer that question with an anecdote, and I begin the book with this anecdote, so forgive me if you have to read it, if you, if you read it again. Uh, but it's an, a, a story that I heard from my father that, that baffled me, and that was really uh, the spur to go into this subject. And the story is as follows. My father, uh, who was Dutch, um, and he... Uh, became a law student in 1941. He went to Utrecht University. And if you studied law, especially in those days, but even today to some extent, it was the common thing to join a fraternity. That's where you made your contacts and so on. And to join a fraternity meant initiation rituals and hazing and jumping up and down like a frog and polishing people's shoes and being abused and shouting at and shaving your head and all that kind of thing. And because the fraternities in 1941, when, which was already under Nazi occupation, had been banned by the German authorities as potential sources of uh, resistance, the fraternity stuff still went on, but underground. So the hazing was clandestine. Uh, but they did it. And they also had to, like all students, had to sign uh, an oath of loyalty to the German occupation, which 75% of the students refused to do, And if you refused to do this, you were forced, if they caught you, you were forced to go and work for the German war industry. You would would be deported to Germany and to work in a factory. My father refused, went uh, into hiding. Somebody in the student underground screwed up, issued the order that students had to come back to their hometowns, which my father did, was met at the station by his father, my grandfather, who was not uh, at that moment a well man. And there were a lot of so-called Grüne Polizei around, and it was uh, announced that those uh, men between certain ages who didn't sign up for work in Germany, that their parents would be arrested. And my father didn't dare take the risk, even though the chance of this happening may not have been all that great. So he went to a, a camp in Holland where Dutch thugs were being trained by the SS to uh, do their job, which was very unpleasant. He was then sent to Berlin where he was in a workers' camp, not a concentration camp, and worked for a factory in East Berlin making railway engines. And it was a mixed experience, on the one hand because he was not Jewish, uh, unlike my mother, and because he was working for a German factory, there was a certain amount of freedom. He saw Fürthwängler conduct in the Friedrichstraße and that kind of thing. But it got very unpleasant after 44 and in 45, and so he lived through the bombings, the Soviets approaching from the east, the RAF bombing uh, at night, the uh, US Air Force by day, 
He had to move several times. In May 45, he was almost executed by a Russian officer who didn't speak English or German. Uh, he then, on his way to a DP camp, collapsed in the middle of Berlin of exhaustion and hunger, was picked up by some <coughs> dubious figure who took him to a ruined house where he was nursed back into some kind of health by a prostitute, then was in a DP camp, finally made his way back to Holland, and joins the university and his fraternity. Um, and because the hazing rituals in 41 had been done underground, the fraternity decided they had to do this all over again properly. And so boys who had been through even worse experiences than my father, who had been to Dachau and Buchenwald and so on, were there, jumping around like frogs, being abused, and so on. And I asked my father, how is it possible that you would have, been, you would have put up with this? I mean, everything that you lived through, how could you possibly have done this without protest? Well, we thought it was sort of normal. And that's, of course, the key word after thinking about it. I think that there was such a thirst to go back to the world as it had been, uh, as it were, normality, um, that this, to them, represented the, the, the pre-war world. It was going back to life as it had been. And, of course, it was an illusion. If you think about it in a, on a larger scale, the world could never go back to what it was. The famous uh, phrase, never again, uh, was in fact on a sign on the gates of Buchenwald put up by communist prisoners, never again. And never again was, of course, a, a very common sentiment then. Uh, people did not want to go, most people did not want to go back to the world as it had been uh, before 1940. And indeed, the world didn't. Now, to simplify the contents of this book, and I'm, I won't bore you by trying to sum them up, I'll take two themes that fascinated me and that sort of run through the book, or much of the book, in various ways and in various places. One is revenge, which is, of course, something that all happens after every serious conflict uh, and not foreign occupation. And the other is the question of legitimacy. How do you put a country back again after fascism, Nazism, foreign occupation, and so on, under a le legitimate government that everybody can consent uh, to live under. And the two, revenge and legitimacy, of course, are themes that are extremely linked. Revenge, uh, in my view, and there was a huge amount of revenge all over the world, a very bloody uh, revenge, is very rarely something that simply comes up spontaneously, as it were, the people's spontaneous feelings and so on. It's usually stirred up for political reasons, just as ethnic conflict usually is. Uh, people spoke in, in, I remember, in Serbia and in Bosnia and so on, of ancient hatreds and so on. Well, possibly some of these hatreds were ancient, but they tend to come and go, and when they come, they're stirred up. So it was, I think, with revenge. And the hatreds and fissures that run through most societies were deliberately, of course, inflamed by foreign occupiers who used problems that existed in society uh, already, they then inflamed them, stirred them up, made them worse. And that, of course, leads to the kind of revenge that you see after the war. To give you a few examples, the Vichy regime in France would never have come to power if it hadn't been uh, for the German victory in 1940. These, of course, were, were old fissures that go back to the French Revolution. I mean, you had a strong reactionary Catholic, uh, anti-Semitic right wing, but they wouldn't have really come to power in the way they did if it hadn't been for the Germans. And so it made things that already existed in French society far worse, and which will also explain 
the brutality of the revenge that followed the German defeat. Belgium, problems between the French-speaking part of Belgium and the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium was there, but it was, of course, used again by the occupation to stir up Dutch-speaking nationalism against the French, even though there was also a French-speaking uh, version of uh, fascism under de Grelle. These were things that, that existed and were made much worse and then led to all kinds of vengeance after the war. The worst cases where it really led to civil wars uh, are well known. It could have led to civil wars in many countries. One could argue that there was a civil war in Italy, for example. It was snuffed out fairly, fairly quickly, but the, the embers of that have really, uh, are still not entirely extinguished between the left and, and the right and the, the strength of the Communist Party in Italy for many years, the loathing of the Catholic Church and so on. I mean, it, it, it goes back to problems in Italy that preceded, of course, World War II, were made much worse and then erupt into violence when the war is over. Anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, I would be the last to claim that it's something unique to Eastern Europe, but that's where most of the most brutal violence took place, was of course deliberately stirred up by foreign occupation, either but mostly by, by the German occupation, but the Soviet occupation did its bit in stirring it up as well, which may be one explanation. I think there are others, but one explanation why, perversely, a lot of the vengeance or the vengeful uh, persecution, sometimes killing, after the war was perpetrated in Poland against the one people who suffered even more than the Poles, namely the Jews. In colonial countries, and, and this, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this book, not just about Europe, but about the whole world, is that people tend to think that the West and the East are somehow completely different worlds and they have such different cultures and such different histories and so on that there can't be very much in common. In fact, of course, you see the same problems all over the world, indeed in different cultures um, with different histories and different political circumstances. Minorities, such as the Jews in Poland, were often the people who got it in the neck when vengeance is in the air. The same thing happened in colonial countries uh, in Eastern and Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, Malaya, and particularly, particular, it was the Chinese who uh, were persecuted after the war by Malays, Indonesians, and so on. Not just the Chinese, also the Ambonese, Christian minority. And why were they persecuted? For various reasons. Again, because antagonism and hostility had been deliberately stirred up during the war, and in some ways before the war, the minorities are usually favored by colonial government as middlemen and so on. And so the Chinese minority played that role in the Dutch East, Dutch East Indies. They were often more trusted than the local, than the Javanese or the Sumatrans. They were the business, the merchant elite, and so on. Minorities can often benefit from colonial rule because it keeps the majorities off their backs. And so in Indochina, it was the Montagnards who were very often pro-French and later pro-American because it kept the Vietnamese off their backs. In Taiwan, it was the native uh, Aboriginal tribes who were often pro-Japanese because it kept the Chinese majority off their backs and so on. So these antagonisms are already there. The Indians in Burma, I mean, there are many examples. The Japanese, when they uh, invaded and occupied these countries, used this in another way. 
they used the minorities, and the Chinese in particular, by persecuting them in a worse way to pander to the majorities. So they tried to make themselves popular by promoting Malays in Malaya at the expense of the Chinese. So the Chinese went into the resistance. The bulk of the anti-Japanese resistance in Southeast Asia was Chinese. And so as soon as the war was over, the Chinese then bore the brunt of Malay vengeance, as they did in the Dutch East Indies. You would have thought that the Indonesians had more cause to attack the Dutch, which they also did, but the most vicious violence was usually reserved for the Chinese and the Ambonese, later repeated in 1965 uh, in the military coup on the Suharto, um, when about half a million Chinese uh, were killed, supposedly because they were communists. Now, some groups, uh, you would have thought, would have more or some communities or ethnic groups, more reason for vengeance than others. One interesting story, I think, is why the Jews didn't really avenge themselves very much, uh, very little, in fact. And again, I think the explanation is not because Jews are nicer people than others uh, or less prone to vengeance. Vengeance is a very universal human emotion, I think. Uh, it was political. There was a group of Jews under a man called Abba Kovna, who later became a famous poet in Israel, born uh, in um, a, a ghetto in Lithuania, who was not in a death camp. He was with the partisans. He was a very tough guy. And he thought in 1945, this war for us cannot be over. We have to kill six million Germans before we were even. We have to show the world that they can't do this to, to the Jews. And he had all kinds of plans of poisoning the water supplies of Nuremberg and so on, and went to Israel, laid out his plans to Ben-Gurion and others, who were absolutely not sympathetic. They wanted to stop this at once, because Ben-Gurion, being a practical man, realized that to, the, to build uh, a Jewish state uh, in Palestine, they didn't want to get, to get bogged down in what had happened in Europe before. This was ancient history. He wanted to, people to forget about that. The new Jew had to be born in Israel, the heroic Jew tilling the land and so on. The, the Holocaust for him was uh, a distraction. And uh, he also realized that if Jews started to kill Germans in large numbers, they would lose the moral high ground. There would be the, the idea could easily, easily spread, especially in Germany. Well, we had our go, and they've had theirs, and so that's it. So in fact, it was rarely stopped for political reasons. Nonetheless, Kovner did get his hands on a particularly toxic chemical at the Hebrew University from two very sympathetic chemists, one of whom later, Katsir, became the president of Israel. And uh, these were hidden in milk cans. Kovner got onto a boat on the way to, to France with a friend of his. I can't remember. I think his name was Rosencrantz. Um, and Kovner didn't speak any English, but was disguised as a British soldier. And uh, one day, when they were nearing Cherbourg, there was an announcement that Mr. Kovner had to come up and talk to the British officers. And he thought he'd been rumbled. In fact, he hadn't been. They simply suspected him of not being a British soldier uh, for good reasons. And the deal with his friend, Rosencrantz, was if there were any real trouble, they had to dump the chemicals in the sea. And the friend concluded from this episode when, his, when Kovner was called away that this was indeed trouble, so he dumped it all, and that was saved a lot of lives in Nuremberg and other German cities, probably. But that was the end of it. There wasn't really much more uh, Jewish revenge, which I think supports my hunch that serious acts of revenge are almost always politically motivated. I mean, they may be based on emotions that have histories and so on, but they're deliberately manipulated.
That brings me to the question of legitimacy. It's, of course, a common conceit amongst those who have fought, who have resisted a foreign occupation, as opposed to those who've collaborated, that the resistors, the people who are in the resistance, have the moral and legitimate right to run societies after the war is over. And one can't entirely um, uh, disagree with this in a, on, a, on a moral level. And the famous bestseller in France, I think two years ago, by, um, is it Joseph Hessel? Cassel, yes. uh, who was, of course, in, in the resistance. And he felt that modern France or modern Europe had forgotten the values that they fought with neo, the neoliberalism of today's world, that the old left-wing ideals for which the resistance had struggled and fought again, died against the German occupation, were being forgotten and so on. And he said, this has to be revived. This is what we fought for. We should never forget that. And of course, in '45, that was a very strong emotion, that the, that the largely left-wing ideals for which the resistance movements in many occupied countries had fought, had the right to rule things after the war. And, of course, the left-right opposition is not entirely applicable, but in, in a very rough way, it is. It was often the, the left that was in the resistance because, against Nazism and fascism and the old ancien regime that collaborated. France is, of course, a very clear example of this, but Greece is another where the collaborators with the Nazis were very often the same men who'd been in the um, dictatorial right-wing government of Metaxas before the war. It was true in Italy, it was true in Belgium, as I already said, and it was true in many countries, that the, the right discredited itself by collaborating. Not the entire right, I mean, there was also orthodox Christian resistance and so on, but by and large. Now, in the colonies, this, this was a very uh, much more complicated issue, because after the war, when there was a rebellion against French rule in Algeria, it was actually the left that crushed it with great brutality. The Dutch East Indies was the same story when the newly formed or declared government of, in, of in independent Indonesia rebelled against Dutch rule. It was a social democratic government in The Hague at that time which opposed them. And they opposed them on the following grounds that the nationalists declared independence in 1945 in Indonesia had collaborated with the Japanese. In other words, in Dutch eyes, uh, and this of course was very self-serving, and what they were really worried about was that the Dutch economy would collapse and they'd lose their clout in the world and so on, but the argument was that Sukarno and other uh, nationalist leaders were fascists. And so often people, and this was true in the case of France too, people who'd fought in the resistance against the Nazis and against the German occupation were sent to places like Algeria and uh, Indonesia to put down nationalist rebellions against colonial rule who were supposedly collaborators with the fascists or the fascist powers. And so the, the left-right thing doesn't quite work. The other thing is that it was very difficult to stitch countries together again, which were on the verge of civil war or worse, if you didn't have a kind of figure who had the legitimacy to sew countries back together again. It helped if you had a monarch who could be uh, associated more or less with the resistance. The difference between the Netherlands and Belgium is interesting in this respect. In the Netherlands, the Dutch queen was in London during the war with the free Dutch government. Therefore, her voice was heard on the resistance radio and so on. And so she could come back as a legitimate monarch 
and everybody could feel relatively comfortable with that arrangement. In Belgium, it was somewhat different. The Belgian king had slightly disgraced himself by trying to make a deal with the German occupation. He was certainly not associated with the resistance. And so the situation in Belgium was far worse in 1945. De Gaulle, of course, played a... Without De Gaulle, I, I think France could very well have had a civil war. Even though de Gaulle was very suspicious of the, especially the communist resistance, uh, he had to work with them. And uh, the, the left was very suspicious of de Gaulle, again, for very good reasons. But everybody could recognize that de Gaulle's nationalist credentials and his resistance against the, na the Nazi occupation was impeccable. And so in many ways, he could play the role of a legitimate monarch in France. Japan was an interesting case where the emperor, in whose name many atrocities in the war was carried out, was kept on the throne deliberately by MacArthur, because MacArthur felt that without that unifying force, there would be a Japanese, Japanese rebellion against the American occupation. In fact, the role played by MacArthur was more, more complicated and more interesting. He saw himself as a kind of Christ-like figure who was going to restore a kind of moral order to Japan. Indeed, Herbert Hoover, uh, on a visit to Japan, I think in 45, maybe 46, likened General MacArthur to St. Paul. A very odd comparison, but it's certainly how MacArthur saw it himself. I mean, he worked with, mostly in the beginning, with new people from the, with new dealers from the United States, whose politics are very different from MacArthur's own Republican politics. But he did have a kind of moral mission to restore order, to make Japan, what he really wanted is to make Japan into a Christian nation, but this would have, as de Gaulle would have said, in vast programme. But he did have a mission to re-educate Japan, make it into a kind of democracy in the American image, and so on. And himself, indeed, in Japanese eyes, was a kind of legitimate shogun who, because of the relatively benign nature of the American occupation, he was actually extremely popular. And when he left Japan, in the beginning of the 1950s, he was much more popular in Japan than he was in the United States. There were crowds lining the route on the way to, to Haneda Airport with people crying and, and sort of you know, uh, going down on their knees and thanking the great American shogun, his great benign influence on the immediate post-war uh, Japan. Now, without unifying figures like this, or without this kind of manipulation, because that's, of course, what it is, too. It was very difficult, I think, to restore legitimacy. And the sad thing, because of the Cold War, if you look at it in a broad way, the very sad thing is that in the end, of course, the left resistance, especially those who were close to the Communist Party, on the whole, were quickly marginalized, crushed, uh, left out of things. And many people of the old ancien regimes, who had been more or less collaborators with Nazi and fascist occupation came back. And this was true in Japan, it was true in Germany, it was true in occupied countries as well, to a more or, more or lesser extent. It may have been necessary. You needed a lot of the old elite to keep countries going, to keep the administra administration going and so on. It was also true, as Adenauer realized, who was terrified of another situation like in 1918 where you'd get vengeful underground revanchism and so on, uh, that you have to try and incorporate a lot of the old collaborationist elite in order to have an orderly transition to democracy. Uh, all this may be true. It must nonetheless have been extremely galling to grow up 
in these countries um, as a member of the, of the following generation, knowing that your professors and your diplomats and your bureaucrats and so on, many of them still had blood on their hands. And it's not for nothing that the most violent ultra-left revolts that took place in the 1970s were in Japan and in Germany and Italy for exactly that reason, because young people felt they had to make up for what their parents did, that their parents had looked the other way, they would resist, and that meant hijacking planes for the Palestinian cause, and as was the case with, uh, in, I think in Entebbe, uh, where one nice young German woman full of ideals for resisting fascism and so on, the first thing she did was uh, separate the Jews from the Gentiles. And this was somebody who saw herself as a resistor against modern fascism, and she, of course, saw the post-war democratic German state as uh, simply carrying on fascism. Now, the never again, and I'll end with that, issue is also very important. And the last part of the book is really about that, about how after enormous destruction, you get a period of creation. And uh, there was enormous idealism in 1945 too. A better world had to be created, a world that was more equal, that which had better institutions, international institutions, that would stop future wars like the last one. And you had this on the European level. It's the beginning of a lot of European idealism. You had it on the level of the UN, which was officially founded, not the UN of the wartime alliance, but the UN as we know it, which was founded in San Francisco in 1945. You saw it in the way that the first election in 1945 after the war in Britain, Winston Churchill was voted out to the disgust of my own grandmother, who was the daughter, who was British, but the daughter of two German-Jewish immigrants. Uh, and she, in a letter to her husband, called this sort of black ingratitude of our people for the man who saved our lives and so on. But that was not the common sentiment in Britain, especially in the army. The common sentiment was we fought this war but not to bring back these old toffs to run the country in the way that they've always done before. And Churchill, of course, represented the old toffs. And they wanted a new world with good housing, decent education for everybody, strong trade unions, a social democratic world promised by Attlee and something that had been discussed among soldiers in education programs and so on during the war. And you found this everywhere, also in the United States. One of the sources that I used in my research was a U.S. Army magazine written by uh, U.S. Army soldiers for the U.S. Army <coughs> called Yank. Now, the politics in Yank, if you read it now, are sort of more or less where the nation is today, way to the left of the Democratic Party. And this was a worldwide phenomenon. It was everywhere that people really wanted to give the left a chance. Now we need more equality, we need a different society, and we need a more united world. It's the world that Tony Judd, um, in his work, of course, celebrated, because he came of age exactly when in the sort of Atlee's Britain. And it's a world that, uh, that Tony quite rightly said before he died that was very quickly vanishing, because the kind of idealism felt by the generation that lived through World War II is pretty much dissipated. Nobody in Europe is really afraid enough anymore that a war will break out between France and Germany uh, if there isn't a strong united Europe. The U United Nations, very few people have anything but cynical thoughts about it now. Social democracy has pretty much collapsed, not just because of a lack of idealism, but also because 1989, when everything to do with the left was discredited, really, with the fall of the Soviet empire, and the baby was thrown away with the bathwater in, in some 
respects, but it's left a great big hole. There's very little idealism left. And what's left is often the kind of idealism one would not necessarily wish to encourage, like the, the sort of neoconservative uh, zeal to go and fight wars all over the place to bring democracy. I mean, that, in some ways, that they are the heirs to the idealism of the left in 1945, but in a sort of perverse way, really. And I'm not that optimistic about this, because I think what it might tell us is that periods of great creation often follow periods of huge destruction. And one can only hope that after the next bout of destruction, there'll be enough of us left to be able to reconstruct. Thank you. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.